Please sit down. I'm very embarrassed. Please sit down. Um, I'm so pleased to be here um, at Stephen Angie's invitation. Because it's so important that we seek to be partners in, partners in the gospel for Cambridge as the one body of Christ. And to have that sense of being kingdom Christians, all of us, as I, understand, I know from what I've been hearing today, everybody sent. You know, everybody sent out, nobody left behind, everybody at least one foot forward for the kingdom. So let us pray to be kingdom people. Father, you have revealed to us your majesty. Uh, you are our sovereign Lord, and we seek to live our lives in accordance with your perfect will. We ask you that in the power of your spirit, we may, we may see what Jesus is doing in our world and join in. We pray that you will give us the strength, the wisdom, and the endurance to be persistent Christians in every way. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and in the power of his spirit. Amen. Well, as you, you're probably aware, this, these are not my usual surroundings. I'm, I'm missing Gothic pillars, and, uh, <laughs> and I'm usually warmer than this. I've usually got more clothes on than this. But it's really important, um, and in my celebration of, of your life, about you know that we as Christians uh, need to um, uh, to have an understanding that we don't have to worry about each other being successful because there are always more people to win. There's always uh, more situations to transform. I mean, I remember a story of a, when I was a vicar, I had this man, this middle-aged man, who was getting more and more grumpy as it was getting closer to his, his uh, daughter's wedding. You know, something about dads, you know, <laughs> their daughter, you know. I said to my brother-in-law, when can Hope, my niece, go out with boys? He said, when she's 35. <laughs> So, he, so Mark was getting grumpier and grumpier, and at last his daughter said to him, Dad, I know why you're getting grumpy. You think that because I'm getting married, I'll love you less. She said, actually, because I love Philip, I'm released to love you more. So we are people who believe that love breeds love. And there's space for all of us who want to live in the truth and celebrate the love of Jesus. So, um, but it does mean that we're also called to be outside our comfort zone. Um, on Christmas Day, um, I always go to prison. Um, um, they usually let me out again afterwards at the end of the service. But I, every other year, I go to, this, like this year, I went to, this Christmas, I went to um, Whitemore, the high security prison at March, and the Fens. And um, I was well outside my comfort zone. It's, it's, it's also, it's quite um, a good place to be because it's very interactive, you know, they, um, Lord help him, they're <laughs> saying, when I'm preaching. But um, they, very interactive. But this particular Christmas, it was, it was particularly difficult because there were a lot of fellows in, in chapel who weren't there to worship. They were there to um, exchange contraband. They were there to just it was a place to be outside their cell on Christmas Day, and so they were um, pretty unruly. And I thought, what do I do? And this, and what do I do to make sure they pay attention while I'm preaching? So I called on <laughs> um, eld um, elderly Pentecostal black ladies, because um, I said to them, look, who was the last person you could trust in your life who's not let you down? I bet it's your grandma. And I said, what's your grandma is at home praying for you? So if your grandma taught you anything, you're going to listen now. <laughs> that was the end of the discipline problem. <laughs> so there was this Anglican bishop relying upon Pentecostal ladies <laughs> um, to get the word across. But I went straight from chapel down to the down to the, where the, um, the most dangerous prisoners are kept locked up all the time. And there was a real, the real test. I felt very uncomfortable. These men who've done some terrible things, who'll be locked up for the rest of their lives, Christmas Day, 
and I go to wish them a happy Christmas. And it was a test for me because, as Steve was saying earlier on about the dolphins and the rain, you know, Jesus is good <laughs> and there is hope of resurrection even when it's dire. And I had that uncomfortable experience of realizing the truth of that as I wished people a happy birthday for Jesus um, in high security cells. We then went into uh, the, the hospital wing and again I found myself outside my comfort zone with um, a man who'd committed atrocious murders weeping on my shoulder while I was talking to two men who'd suffered severe burns falling asleep with a joystick um, alive but falling asleep because of their addiction to spice to the drug that's most, the most common drug in prison at the moment. And I'm proud to say that the person who is leading the campaign to obliterate spice from Whitemore um, is one of these young men who was severely burned working with the chaplain. But it's a Christian initiative to break through this terrible drug blight in Whitemore. And this was a show, I think it seems to me, that what we need to be reminded of as we're thinking about our being salt and light, it's about how are we, in the power of Jesus, prepared to get outside our comfort zone in order to serve. It's easy to serve in the comfort zone with people we know. What about the people who are uncomfortable to know, or dangerous to know, or who threaten us by their, the way they live their lives? Well, maybe that's where Jesus is. You know, one of the things about, you know, we tend to think that, um, that the middle of things is the center of things. Mm -mm. Um, the center for Jesus is always on the edge. That's where the center is for Jesus. And if we want to be with Jesus, then we need to be liminal people, which is to say we need to be edgy people too. So we need to be able to speak um, as Christians to, to those in, in power. And sometimes we have to learn how to exercise power and influence ourselves. Um, I sit in the House of Lords um, and I'm the lead bishop in the House of Lords for education. And this means I meet with ministers and uh, regularly and officials and remind these officials, they think they get very, uh, civil servants um, are quite properly and naturally tidy-minded people. So they get a bit upset it's not very tidy having the churches running more than 7,000 schools across the country with state funding support. But I have to go and say, remind ministers, um, including the current Secretary of State, that um, I don't come there as somebody pleading um, just as a stakeholder wanting to grab my bit, we want, as the church, using the platform of our 4,700 schools, we want to have an impact on the whole education system, which, is, um, which means, you know, telling off um, Amanda Spielman, uh, the chief inspector of Ofsted, for thinking that you only measure things by the metrics of English and maths, and actually, what you really think what we really ought to be doing is measuring uh, the, the development of the character of our children as a holistic, as growing up to be holistic people who, who, are, who grow up not only to be excellent at English and maths, but grow up to be good citizens, warm neighbors, loving spouses and, and, and parents. That's what we want from our education system. So I keep saying that. But we have to be, we have to be the people who, um, who think about our own belonging, because um, I just had to re replace my passport, and my new passport has a photograph of some, of some old man I don't recognize. <laughs> but maybe um, I'm uncomfortable, a bit uncomfortable about the passport, because I'm seeking the person, as I look into that photograph, I mean, when I look in the mirror, I don't know about you, there's a lot of young people here, but when I look in the mirror, I just see somebody who's 21, but just affected by gravity. <laughs> um, 
But what I try to see is the person whom God sees as his to eternity. Because as Christians, we are dual citizens. We are citizens of this world as God's creatures within his creation, but we are also citizens of the kingdom of God, which is growing in secret here on earth, like a mustard seed, to grow into something marvelous, and a kingdom that will come to completion when all things are brought under the feet of Jesus, as the Father has promised. We are kingdom people whose purpose of evangelism, sanctification, and service are all one for the transformation of the world. Now, I shall be pleased to be told in greater detail what the vision and strategy is for, for C3. The Diocese of Ely, which I lead, has a vision to pray to be the generous and visible people of Jesus Christ. We put the pray to be in the front. It was an atheist who, told, who gave me the insight to do that because um, you might get a hollow laugh from lots of people uh, when the church claims to be generous and visible servants, of, uh, friends of Jesus Christ. So, oh yeah, hmm, where's the evidence of that then? But actually it was an atheist who said, if you put we pray to be in front of it, it'll be much more authentic. So we pray to be generous and visible people of Jesus Christ. And our strategy is, we call it is Ely 2025, to be fully alive. Now, um, in the second century AD, there was, a, uh, there was a saint, an apologist called St. Irenaeus, who, wrote a, who we know about because he wrote against a lot of Christian heresy. What he's remembered for, most of all, is um, a particular couple of sentences who said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive, and the vision of humanity is the, is the face of God. Um, and that comes in a, different, a lot of different translations, but we've adopted that sense of the glory of God is a human being fully alive. We want to be fully alive in Christ. And we have a strategy for growth. I mean, isn't it marvelous? That there's, I was saying to Steve, um, and he said it now as well, this morning that isn't it great that you're too crowded in here? Isn't it great that it's claustrophobic? It's marvelous. <laughs> so I'll, I look forward to coming to the opening of the next building. Um, but actually, although we have a strategy for growth, I keep saying that growth is an outcome, not a purpose. Our purpose is the transformation in Christ of our churches and communities. Growth is the outcome which we dearly pray for, but it's an outcome which God will bless as he chooses and as he disposes. Our job is to turn up and to be led by the Spirit of God to do what Jesus wants, whatever the cost. And I've chosen the following reading from John 10, verses one to 10, because it's the basis of the vision of the Church of England uh, for its involvement with education, and I'll talk more about that. But first, this reading from St. John's Gospel, chapter 10. Very truly I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way, is a thief or a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. If you want to do what Jesus wants us to do, we have to recognize that our foundation, the person we follow, is not an ordinary shepherd at all. Ordinary shepherds live off the sheep. 
Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The best recognition of the second millennium of Jesus in 2000 was um, the Seeing Salvation exhibition at the National Gallery organized by Neil McGregor. At the center of which, it was, it's funny because I don't know whether any of you were around to go to that exhibition, quite a long time ago now, um, but it was like going to church somehow. Because you went in and people got quieter as they got further into the exhibition until they got to the heart of the exhibition, which was the 16th century painting by Zurbaran of the trust lamb, of the image of Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Trust is the four feet of the, of the lamb, all trussed up. Jesus bound for the cross so that we might be free. He is both the shepherd and the eternal lamb for us. Now this is the point um, in the address where I do a little bit of a sales pitch for the Church of England, um, but only in blowing the trumpet for my archbishop, for Justin. Because although he's, you may have seen, he's become embroiled in controversy in much of the print media, I'm so proud of him as the chief shepherd of the Church of England for speaking out about our tax culture, about the failures of the welfare system, and about the tyranny of debt among the poor at this TUC Congress. What was not reported was that the highly secular labor politicians and trade unionists gave a standing ovation to a speech rooted in the scriptures. In the account in Luke of the Virgin Mary's radical song of human transformation by God in the Magnificat. It was very interesting because I saw him the day before he was going to this and he said that he was a bit, you know, a bit full of the collie wobbles at the thought of addressing the TUC. Um, but he was determined, both in the speech and in questions afterwards, to be completely open that the church needs to be political, but not party political. You know, the thing is that it's no good if we live down to the expectation that we're so heavenly minded that we're no earthly use. The point is, it's only because we're heavenly minded that we are of any earthly use. That's the point. Now, what was, you know, so of course, in the aftermath, um, it's, it's been revealed that the church is, it's not, is itself not pure in its investment choices or in its employment practices always. But this entanglement should never shut Justin up. I remember when he, redu he reduced John Humphreys to silence on the Today programme on Radio 4, when Humphreys thought he had Justin banged to rights uh, when he revealed that the Church of England had an indirect interest in Wonga. How sorry was the Archbishop, Humphreys asked, expecting prevarication and damage limitation. And Justin was completely open and said, this is rubbish, you know, this is terrible. I am dreadfully sorry. And this was, it seemed to me, a real demonstration of how we as Christians model how responsible authority is exercised. This is power revealed in vulnerability and in honesty. There are real issues about how Christians cozy up to power, not least the established church to which I belong. But as Christians, we cannot avoid the exercise of power and influence, but we do have a, we do have a key duty to model how these are exercised in a way that can be lived truthfully and truly more widely in society. Um, I remember um, ordaining um, a man who was working in the, the most, um, how do I say, the most stretched and um, he, he believed very immoral end of the financial markets. And uh, he just insisted that um, even if it cost him his job, that he was going to behave in an ethical way and that he was going to bring Jesus into his workplace. And um, this was very costly for him. He, he, lost, he, he was denied several promotions. But the, and I don't know what, what the outcome was, but I don't need to know really, but he did tell me that, <laughs> he said, but one day, at, um, his boss who had been, um, 
rubbishing the Christian faith publicly to people, passed him in the corridor one day on a Wednesday and said, tomorrow, five o'clock, come and make a pitch for Jesus. I don't know what the outcome of that was, but I have a sense in which, well, I don't need to know, do I, other than that the Holy Spirit was at work in the most unproductive of, apparently unproductive set of circumstances. Which, of course, gives me some, uh, some sense of, um, of being supported in the, in the public role that I have. If you type my postcode, um, if I type in my postcode when I want a book delivery from Amazon, my address comes up as the Lord Bishop of Ely. <laughs> I, don't, I never really get used to being addressed as my Lord, uh, not least by armed police officers at the door of the House of Lords. At the tea party, when I was introduced at the House of Lords, uh, you, have, you have a tea party with your family afterwards, and um, my elderly mother leant across from her wheelchair and said, darling, how did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> but one of the good things about all of this that brings me down to earth is the proper level of irony deployed by my friends and my family who remain singularly unimpressed. And by the fact that as the Bishop of Ely, I'm only addressed as my Lord when someone's about to give me a mad telling off <laughs> and uh, get me completely in my place. Um, I am in regularly seeking to be outward focused and that brings me into schools and other places. And I was at a school a while ago and children you know, quite like to have a go at our regalia. And this is the cross I pr principally wear which has Jesus the Good Shepherd on it. And I said, well, why would a bishop um, be wearing a cross then? <laughs> and this year four girl said, well, there wouldn't be much point to you without that, would there? <laughs> what it is important to understand is that bishops have been understood to have the role of counselor and advisor to the crown for many centuries. And we still sit on the bench closest to the throne in the chamber of the House of Lords, and no one else is allowed to sit there. A great deal, of course, has happened since um, bishops stopped being great officers of state, but our role has evolved because as the membership of the House of Lords has become, um, even for Northern peers, much more London-focused, so bishops have become more significant as a genuinely regional voice uh, in the House of Lords, speaking with some authority about what's going on on the ground through our parish church network and through our network with other people who are committed to public service locally. Um, I regularly go and meet, uh, go onto the Ida Darwin site uh, on the edge of Cambridge um, regularly go and visit young people um, who are um, uh, being educated while they're in hospital because of <coughs> um, eating disorders, self-harm, and, and even uh, trying to commit suicide. I go and spend time with them, and it's been an opportunity then to speak for them or speak about the lack of funding for them um, in the House of Lords. And I can do that with the faces of these young people in, in front of me, in my mind's eye. But principally, we're not in the House of Lords to be bishops of the Church of England, standing up for the Church of England as such, but as bishops of England who in season and out of season seek to be a non-partisan voice for the forgotten and unpopular at the poorest in our society and refugees. The successful campaign, campaign for legislation combating modern slavery was led by a bishop. And now is not the, diff not the time to give you a detailed history of the public role of, of church leaders. Suffice it to say that within a generation of Constantine becoming the emperor, the emperor and persecution ceasing, within a generation of that, bishops were in great demand as judges of public disputes and legal matters because mostly they were trusted not to be corrupt. And St. Augustine of Hippo, one of the greatest of the early church fathers, got quite frustrated sometimes that he spent so much time serving the city, um, uh, time taken away from pastoring, his, pastoring the flock and uh, writing the wonderful theology that we, we still receive, uh, we receive from him. Interesting though, it's out of that ministry we get his wonderful book, The City of God. An understanding that you know, the we, we actually have to live now as though the heavenly city were here. We're not waiting simply for the heavenly city to come down, the new Jerusalem, we are working for the New Jerusalem right now. 
Now, of course, um, libraries have been written um, about the gains and losses of moving from a powerless, persecuted church to a powerful church, the Church of the Middle Ages and into early modern times. And because the church has been allied to the apparatus of the state in many places, it's not surprising there's been an overemphasis on the interpretation of Romans 13, 1 to 7 about obeying the state, honoring the state. Um, Protestant reformers like Luther um, supported the suppression of rebellion by peasants who were looking for a, new, a better life on the basis of Romans 13. Most recently, Christians in Germany refused to stand against the violent tyranny of Hitler because support for those in authority was so ingrained in their tradition. It took the courage and clarity of a theologian like Dietrich Bonhoeffer to break free and put before his own interest his primary obedience to the cross and his sense of responsibility to succeeding generations to stand for the truth, even though the truth that would set him free would in fact set him free to be hanged at Flossenburg just before the end of the war. Now we have to take Paul's words very seriously, but this is not the last word on the subject of obedience in the Bible. Read the prophet Amos as a real outsider who turns the tables on the priests, or turns the tables on people like me, um, on the priests and the, the servants of the cult of Israel and says, you're promising a day of the Lord which is wonderful and prosperous where nobody has to be worried about judgment? Well, no, because the day of the Lord is gonna be a very different kind of day, a day of judgment, of winnowing, of clearing out. A clearing out of the and, uh, interrogation of the status quo that's gonna upset all the comfortable people. Well, you don't have to be an outsider to be a prophet of Israel because Jeremiah and Isaiah <coughs> were both Jerusalem insiders who spoke God's word in the corridors of power and then duly suffered as a result. Whether we see ourselves as outsiders or insiders, we are the bearers of truth. Because, you know, Jeremiah, the thing about Jeremiah is he wanted to be quiet. He so wanted to be quiet because he would have had a much easier life. Oh Lord, you know, I just try and stop my mouth and it just can't, you know. He just can't not say the truth as he has received from God. He must speak it, even though he ends up in a cistern, locked up. And, and even when he, he says, he gives the people at last some hope about their being returning in 70 years, they don't believe him. When he buys his field, they drag him off into exile. But he will not cease from speaking the truth, because only the truth will set us free. Now, Christians with a long history of civil disobedience are Baptists. Anybody here with a Baptist background? Hooray! Because <laughs> um, Baptists from the very beginning have been um, um, wonderfully rebellious towards religious authority. Wonderfully rebellious. I hope that still continues, does it? <laughs> and that was true in the 16th century, and it's true for Baptists in China now, who are painfully living the truth um, in spite of government persecution. And this means I get rather cross when Christians here in this country talk as though we were being persecuted. We live in an increasingly secular society in which Christian values really clash with others. But saying this is persecution is to devalue de the real persecution and the real threat of violence, um, imprisonment and death which faithful Christians face around the world. And these are people whom you're supporting um, from your giving. It's one thing to lose power in our society where we've taken it for granted that people like I would speak and people would listen. We now have to make our voice heard in a contended environment. But that's one thing to say we've lost power in our society it's another to be so powerless in the world's terms that it's easy to torture you, and yet for that person to be a champion of Jesus Christ and his gospel. I once asked a holy old bishop whether bishops had any special privileges among Christians, and he just smiled at me, <laughs> and he said, hmm, only one. 
So I said, what's that then? Thinking, oh, <laughs> at least one. He said, to go to the flames first. <laughs> I sometimes pray for the insight to know how I would respond as a Christian and as a leader of others if persecution did come for us to face. And I haven't been given a conclusive answer. But I do look to one of my heroes, Maximilian Kolbe, who was a Polish resistance priest sent to Auschwitz um, where he took the place of a married prisoner with a family and bore his punishment, which was to be starved to death. I've been in that cell at Auschwitz. You know, it is an extraordinary um, Auschwitz. It's a surviving obscenity of how human beings can behave. It's true that birds don't sing in Auschwitz. And human ash still fills the puddles and pools around the place. But in that cell where Colby and others were held, and I just sat, stood there and wept, was a cross dug into the plaster with a fingernail. The cross right there at the heart of that obscenity. I think Elie Wiesel, the Jewish writer, said was, uh, was uh, reported that um, in Auschwitz a boy got caught stealing a potato, starving boy, and he was just hung on the wire to die. And somebody said, where is God? And somebody said, well, there he is, twitching on the wire. Until 1939, priests like Colby were privileged and honored. From the German invasion and through communism, they were tortured and imprisoned. Now in Poland, priests are powerful again. I guess the test to meet for all of us is always to seek to be consistent in truth and love, regardless of the context. It's part of that living outside our comfort zone. Um, it's very good, you know, to, when, um, uh, when I went, to, I went to, I've only been to one state opening, a, state opening of parliament because bishops have to wear extra clothes anyway to be in the chamber, and then you have to put this um, artificial ermine on top of that. So all I remember is seeing the Queen um, and being in awe of um, this tiny person living such a big Christian vocation. All I also remember is, I don't remember the Queen's speech, I remember just being very hot. <laughs> it would be easy to be drawn in, to, be, um, to think that somehow the trappings were the real thing. And all of us face that, you know, we can all be drawn in to stuff that looks fine and, oh, I can give in to that. Well, actually, all the time, we need to be thinking that the test is truth and love, regardless of the context. I mean, I'm named after the first martyr, Stephen, who was murdered not for being an agitator, <laughs> but for never being deflected from being a follower of Jesus. He was a practical servant of the needy as a deacon, but the likes of Saul of Tarsus wanted him dead for proclaiming what his motivation was, which was to be like Jesus. So like Jesus, he died. And that may be true for us, isn't it? If you read, I recommend if you haven't done it before, sit down and read Mark's Gospel in one go. If you, get a, if you sit down and read Mark's Gospel in one go, what you realize um, very quickly is that the only way you're going to understand Jesus, this enigmatic figure emerging in the gospel, the only way you're going to understand Jesus is by f following him to the cross. That's where you see who he is. And the only way you're going to find out about your destiny as a human being is to go there to the foot of the cross. That's the only place we're going to find out. And that means that when we say, we, talk, we, we blithely talk about or read about taking up our cross and following him, what's well, that marvelous bit? <laughs> taking up your cross daily. There's a wonderful um, African-American poet um, who, um, uh, Maya Angelou, who was asked, was she a Christian? She said, honey, um, I start again every day. And um, she was, 
she was wonderful because <laughs> you can see I'm quite a large person. Um, she said, uh, she came to the Hay Festival and she said, honey, be glad to be big because in the winter you're warm <laughs> and in the summer you're shade. <laughs> well, how are we going to be warmth and shade? And it's only because we're taking up our cross daily and following him. And this is another the matter. How are we going to serve the community like Jesus? How are we to be the hands, you know, like Teresa Avalar said, how are we going to be the hands, the feet, the, the eyes, the touch of Jesus? Now, various attempts have been made by Jews and Christians to separate themselves from the world, to be pure, like the Essenes, um, probably from whom John the Baptist broke cover to um, confront sin and power in Jerusalem and to proclaim the coming of the Savior. St. Benedict created his monastery um, for his monks separate from the world, and yet that rule of St. Benedict has had a profound effect on European culture right up to today. There is no alternative but for Christians to muck in if we are truly to serve the Word made flesh who came to abide with us and to transform us. You know, the thing is that Jesus became one of us in order to change us. That's the point. Jesus didn't just come and then go away again. <laughs> he became one of us in order to change us. In the 1980s, African theologians and teachers came up with the five marks of mission. Um, in their context, they understood profoundly the need for evangelism and effective Christian nurture. But they also knew that God was calling them to challenge corrupt and violent governments and also to challenge the degradation of the integrity of the environment. I sum up for myself the five marks of mission in a series of five T's. Tell, teach, tend, transform, and treasure. Of course, we proclaim the gospel, we tell, and we teach. We um, and that's why we had the news about joining various discipleship groups here at C3. And if you haven't already signed up, please think about it. Of course we tell and teach, but often people are only prepared to trust our message because we tend people, because we actively seek the transformation of our society with a bias to the poor, and because we treasure God's creation through our recognition of climate change and its impact. I wonder how you at C3 measure against the five marks. Do bear in mind that these insights from African Christians, which we have adopted, it was theirs, and we, you know, we've, we didn't um, give it to them, this was their gift to us, may have had a profound effect on Christian history already. In 1900, most people would have sensibly thought that Africa would by now be an almost entirely Muslim continent. It is, however, a thriving mixed faith economy. Thank God. I'm passionate about how the five marks of mission apl apply to the ministry of the Church of England in its various ways, not least in education. And, and to say to you that um, I think that we need help. Um, I was challenged after the last service by someone who teaches in a, in a Church of England school who says that of course we're not Christian enough and I think that's probably true. Well, it's certainly true <laughs> that um, in providing a service, um, it's easier for people, people like me to say that we are community schools for Jesus' sake, <clears throat> but the Jesus' sake bit sometimes um, gets left out. And part of my job uh, with others is to be putting Jesus into the, the, the vocabulary of school more and more, because actually, even if we're not supposed to be um, supposed to be um, at every turn telling children about God, RE should be going across the whole curriculum, not just RE, and um, any good worship in school must by its very nature be evangelistic. So, but we need help, so, and we need help from you. So, um, talk to Stuart about St. Phillips. But our reading from the Gospel of John is at the heart of the vision that we've been trying to create for the Church of England for, its, um, for serving the common good. Because it starts with Jesus the Good Shepherd. It's as though Jesus takes some, all of his lifelong reflection on Psalm 23 
in preparation for his ministry, and he says, Psalm 23 is fulfilled in me. I'm the one who is leading people beside the still waters. I'm the one bringing people to lie in green pastures. I'm the one in whom you will find your cup running over. So Jesus becomes, um, in, in being the new David, becomes the person whom we see described in Psalm 23, becomes the good shepherd. He's the author of life as the gate, fulfilling this as the son of God. Only the one who lies in the gate of judgment and who pays the price for sin can set us free. The thing between the difference between the hired hand and the real shepherd is the one who lies in the gate, keeping the sheep, sheep safe from wolves and predators through the night, who doesn't run away. And every, every possibility of human harm, of sin, of predation, of, you know, of abused women, of children separated from their parents, there is nothing, there is no danger there is nothing, um, even death, that will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. So only he can come and give us abundant life. And if we're to be like him in his service, that means that we have to serve with close engagement and hospitality. In Pope Francis's language, we have to be so close to God's sheep that we know what they smell like. So I'll be standing at the door, a bit later on. But actually it's a point, isn't it, about being close enough. And our vision is a vision for service of God's kingdom everywhere. It's unashamedly the service of God's wisdom. If you read the book of Proverbs, you will see that the celebration of the goodness of God's creation leads to adoration and to the formation of people whose worship leads to the building of community and of real justice. Justice makes no sense separate from God's righteousness. The basis of human rights is the inviolable love of God for all his little ones. There's no other real foundation for it. It's just a construct, unless it's because every human being counts to God, to eternity. And the God who, um, who believes, you know, I, I sometimes say to people, they say to me, I don't believe in God. I say, well, I'm glad that he believes in you. And the God who believes in us is God the Holy Trinity. And we believe in the power of community, but not as some human construct. We as Christians believe in the profound nature of communion, which is expressed in the perfect love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's much more powerful than any heavily negotiated human community. This is where we experience the heavenly gift of peace in the here and now. You know, when we say, peace be with you, it's not, hello, nice to see you. It's radically sharing the peace of heaven in the here and now. That's what real communion brings. Now I've met too many children who've been written off by the education system. The hard line we have to hold is that no one is ever written off. We've sung about, have you burdened with sin? Do you want to come and drink at the well of life? Nobody is written off. Nobody is written off. Grace and mercy abound, thank God. And it's not our sin, but the resurrection of Jesus that defines us. The future of the church is not what we may have thought of, but it is entirely what we have hoped for, which is to live the fulfillment of God's will. And this gives us the strength to be on the front foot in the current political climate. And as Justin has shown us, we need to be political. We need to be out there. That doesn't mean to say that we, um, you know, that the Church of England appears, you know, having been the Tory party of prayer, has moved through the Lib Dems and according to the Daily Mail is now the Labour party at prayer. <laughs> well, we don't need to accept these labels. What we, what we want to be, the only label we want, you know, is the label of the cross. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a walking, talking, you know, advert for Marks and Spencers myself. But our one indelible, our one indelible mark is the cross, that's our only label, is the cross. Now our government, I don't know whether we should be saying this, but um, our government is obviously broken and preoccupied. 
And we need, as Christians, to be particularly prayerful about what the outcome of Brexit is going to be. Um, it's going to happen. We need to be ready for all the consequences, both the opportunities and the challenges that that will bring. And we need to be the people who say, who are not carping, but loving yeah. about it. And there'll be differences of opinion probably here, but that's, that's irrelevant. The important thing is, how are we going to face the opportunity to recover our identity as kingdom Christians and have the confidence to shape the future of our society with other civil institutions? If central governments are going to be embroiled with Europe forever <laughs> to sort things out, in the meantime, we need to be getting on with it. And we need to be living our vision for the transformation of society in Cambridge or Bury or wherever it is, and that means that we are people who are following the visions, uh, not just the ones we're making up for ourselves, but I, mean, I chair the National Society, which was founded in 1811 by Joshua Watson, who had a vision for the education of poor children to give them a f their start in life, but rooted in being able to read the scriptures for themselves. We need to be on the front foot and we, we need to be doing it together because you know, there's, you know, there's plenty of souls and plenty of things to go around. We don't need to worry about, um, I don't need to be worried about the success of C3. I rejoice at the success of C3. If that goes deep and is transforming lives um, and helping the poor, and it may mean, of course, that we say, yes, you know, if it wasn't for C3, there wouldn't be this food bank, but we ought to be praying for the day when there don't need to be food banks because people are properly, have proper incomes and are valued for the jobs they do. So we need, um, and I, as I was saying, I was challenged earlier about how we make our engagement with education more real, more spiritual, is to say that, you know, I'm working at the moment on a program to bring together um, living faith in school, home, and, and church, where we bring those, things to, those three together in a more expressive way, and to do so only because we believe that this is what the Holy Spirit is asking us to do. And that means taking risks. My, my driver, my course, tells me that brake pads were invented at Le Mans so that cars could go faster around corners. And isn't that great to think that you have brake pads so you can go faster? Because we need to be in a risk-averse society, we need to be risk-takers in a responsible way in order that lives may be changed. Um, I, in the past, have been chair of trustees of a mental health provider charity, and, um, and that arose out of <clears throat> my father was, had severe, was a severe mental illness. His life collapsed. He came and spent his last four years living with me. <laughs> He was the one who was mentally ill. I was the one who went into therapy. <laughs> and I speak openly about this because all of us can face um, frailty and fragility <clears throat> in our mental health. And many of us live with anxiety. I was a bit anxious coming here this morning. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> isn't it important that unless we take risks to reach to people, they will go on believing that they are nothing. They will go on believing, they'll go on being trapped in a howling wilderness in which they believe nobody cares or understands. Um, I was preaching at St. Paul's Hills Road a while ago and confirmed John, a man who was blind because of uh, his blindness was a, was a result of um, various addictions. And he lived with severe mental illness and he gave his testimony before um, before I preached, which meant I had to tear up the sermon, and he said, <clears throat> I have been sectioned 28 times, and at last, somebody's taking my religious delusions seriously. <laughs> he was somebody who at last had found a place because people had reached out to him. So let's be the people who take risks like that. And I am involved in the L'Arche community, founded by Jean Vanier and three um, men with, learning, with a, a, acute learning difficulties, and in 1964, John's just been 90 last week. And um, <clears throat> when I went to go and see the Queen to swear, do, do homage to the Queen, it's a very scary thing to have to do, because I had to kneel down in front of the Queen and put my hands inside hers, and I had to swear the oath of allegiance line by line. And um, 
And, and she said, um, you're involved with Larsh? So I said, yes, ma'am. Do you know them? Oh, yes, she said, I know Jock Vanier. And he, <laughs> Her Majesty goes, has been to stay with them a number of times. Um, and, but this is about, again, it's about th that people taking the time to be with others because, and it's only about because we follow a savior who has stooped to reign. The savior who has stooped to reign and we need to be the people who are with him. And I think therefore we need to be thinking about how we might be part of the springtime of the church. In words of a great prophet of the, part of the 1970s and later brother Roger of Teze, he talks about there being a springtime of the church, which means of course, there has to be a winter time and a, an autumn time beforehand for clearing away the dead wood. And maybe that's where we are now, but we are looking to a springtime of the church which will learn to be much more, much less structurally powerful, but this will be welcomed as we invite people with imagination and courage to embrace the gospel without any enticements of power or status. We can be agents of God's reconciliation and healing who hold out a vision of joy, sacrifice and fidelity to people whose lives are currently reduced to impulse and pleasure, to exploitation and hate. And it will only work if we are prepared to die to ourselves and live for Christ alone. And so if any of you who've been very generously listening to me this morning, or have been involved in the worship, if any of you think that God is speaking to you directly today about your future with him, there will be people waiting here at the front to meet you and pray with you if you'd like them to. If you thought that Christian commitment was about joining a holy huddle, well, I hope that my talk has challenged you to serve the world for Jesus' sake. Everything won by Jesus on the cross can be applied to our penitent heart. And that is just the beginning. Amen.